this was about as bizarre and as easy as it gets. So the number for me was a number that would allow me to never have to work. I feel like we got top, top, top. I went from a sale of you know five hundred thousand dollars to in debt. One hundred ninety-two million dollars. This is Built to Sell Radio with your host John Warlow. This episode of Built to Sell Radio is brought to you by the Value Builder System. So you're an entrepreneur and you've got somewhere between a million and 10 million in annual revenue. And you're trying to figure out what's next. Maybe you wanna scale up, maybe you wanna sell, maybe you wanna bring in a manager and delegate some of the day-to-day stuff, bring in the next generation of leaders, maybe you wanna pass it down to your family. All of those options, the one prerequisite is that it's built to sell, that it's actually something that you could pass on to another generation without you. And that's really what we try to evaluate using the Value Builder score. It takes about 15 minutes to complete the questionnaire, and then you're going to get a readout of how your business would be viewed by an acquirer across eight unique dimensions that acquirers care about. Again, it takes only about 15 minutes. You can do it free at valuebuilder.com. I think it was Bob Dylan who originally said, if you ain't got nothing, you got nothing to lose. And I think that's true for a lot of startups, right? When you start your business, really you're not risking all that much because your business is worthless anyways. And yeah, you take big risks with your business, you make strategy changes, but you know, you're not really risking that much because you know, business isn't really worth much yet. But as you grow and you start to build a successful company, you're actually risking that company every day that you run it. Every day that you have all that equity in your own hands, you're all in, your chips are all on the table. And my next guest, Joey Redner, started to feel a little queasy about that. He was building Cigar City Brewery. And again, a very successful business, originally started off trying to brew a thousand barrels, ultimately got to 55,000 barrels. But all that growth required him to continue to guarantee the debt in the business. He took on a, you know debt from his father, he took on an SBA loan, and eventually he just kind of threw his hands up in the air and said, I'm not comfortable taking on any more debt. And that's exactly when uh, he was approached by Oscar Blues, another very successful craft brewery, and he decided to sell his business. And I think it's a decision that a lot of us could take a lot of solace in and a lot of lessons from. And so to hear his sort of get inside his head and hear his rationale for selling, here's Joey Redner. Joey Redner, welcome to Built to Sell Radio. Thank you for having me. So you own Cigar City Brewing, and having just been down to Tampa, I actually know your company because you guys brew an amazing beer. Thank you. So tell me how you got into this business. Uh, You know, I got into the beer business um, just really out of necessity. Um, Tampa... Florida really as a whole and, and Tampa, uh, the part of Florida I live in just didn't really have a lot of local beer. And, um, you know, I kind of came at beer thinking I didn't like beer the first time, you know, being a, you know, a young guy having a beer, uh, I took a sip of a mass produced lager and scratched my head and said, this can't be what everyone's getting all excited about. It just was a style of beer I didn't personally enjoy. Uh, so it just kind of, put in a mentality in me that anytime I saw a new beer, I knew I didn't like the beers that I already had. So I would just try a new one. And and slowly I started to discover that there were beers that I liked a lot, uh, but they were just very hard to get. The, the distribution was inconsistent. Um, and, you know, out of kind of hunting for them, 
um, and learning about which styles I liked, I, I, I discovered, oh, you can actually make beer. Uh, and that kind of makes the access to the beer a little more steady if you make it yourself. And so that's really where it grew out of me. And I just kept waiting. Um, you know, I knew a city the size of Tampa um, with our population. When you looked around at the rest of the country, there was, you know, four or five, six breweries in the city that size. And we had none uh, that were actually distributing. We had brew pubs, but but most of the beer was staying inside those four walls. So I just kept waiting for someone else to do it, waiting, 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 and no one did. So I just decided uh, that that I thought I could make a run of it. It's funny because if, if you go to a store these days, I mean, I don't know, half the shelf must be craft beer. But back, you know, t- 10, 20 years ago, it was, you know, Bush, Bud, <laughs> Miller Genuine yeah. Gathering. That was kind of it, right? But now it's really taken off. And so you you saw this. Now, take us to the next step. So, so you actually started, I mean, did you know anything about brewing? Did you actually start brewing batches of stuff? Like, how did that yeah, I started brewing as a home brewer, um, and I, you know, I was a pretty undisciplined home brewer. I was more interested in the end result than I was at perfecting the process. Um, so, when I decided to open the brewery, I knew that I needed to to get someone that had real commercial experience and that that really geeked out about the process of getting from B, uh, getting to B from A. Uh, I was more concerned with getting to B. Um, so, so I hired a brewer who, who had experience, but also uh, kind of saw the world the way that I did and had the same um, sort of outlook about about what he wanted to see uh, in a craft beer. Uh, so, so that was a you know very early partnership. In fact, my, my brewer was our only employee because I wasn't paying myself for the first year, um, and and he really did kind of. You know, I remember during the interview, we talked about beer for about five minutes and we talked about music and, and, our, and our lives growing up for about three hours. Uh, and so that's really where the fit came in is that we kind of could see the world. We're very different people, but, but we had a lot of the same interests. How did you compensate that first employee? It was just cash or did you give some shares? Uh, I gave him some profit sharing. So uh, a, a pretty paltry salary to begin with. Um, but he really was, you know, chomping at the bit to, to be a head brewer. Um, he had been a head brewer in the past. And again, at the time, you know, it was kind of hard to apply your trade in the beer industry in the Southeast. There just wasn't a lot of breweries that you could work at. Um, so he was just very eager to be a head brewer again. So he took it, he took, uh, you know, again, a, a fairly modest salary. And then, uh, we did profit sharing, which, which effectively amounted to, I believe, 3% net profit. Uh, sharing, um, which didn't amount to much in the first uh, year or two, but started to get pretty lucrative towards the end for him. And so talk to us about the next evolution. So you've got the brewmaster. I mean, uh, how are you financing the business? Uh, I'm assuming it's a pretty capital intensive business as it grows. It's very capital intensive. Uh, Originally it was, it was personal and family money. Um, We got, yeah, I was, I'm pretty frugal, so I always try to, if you tell me a price, I, I just always assume that it can be done cheaper. Uh, so I tried to add a lot of value that way, just tried to kind of be my own contractor and and, and be my own, uh, you know, uh, sorcerer and, and, and installer for equipment where I could. Um, did a lot of that. We got, let's see, I think my my original budget was in the neighborhood of 100, 850K. Um, which is is a pretty tight budget for for building out a brewery from scratch. 
Uh, and I came in, I think 150 K under budget. Um, and then we operated off of that for probably a solid year before we started seeing enough growth that we needed to, to, uh, go for more capital about, I think it was probably about two and a half, three years in, I took out a uh, SBA loan, which I was very hesitant to do. Uh, I'm just very debt averse, which is not a good, uh, it's not a good mentality in the free industry. As you said, it is extremely capital intensive. Um, but I, I did take the loan out. I was very ambivalent about doing it, but I, I saw that, that we were going at such a pace that, that, the cash flowing that I was trying to do. And I did do a lot of cash flowing when money came in, I'd buy a new tank, but eventually you max out your system and you can't just buy more tanks. You've got to get a new brew house. And that next leap up is usually so high that it's not, it's not something you can do in a cash flow manner in, in a timely way that would have taken me two or three years to pile up enough cash to really build out the next phase. So I went and borrowed the money. Um, and I felt miserable about it the whole time that I had that debt on there. Um, and I'm just a little bit different that way. Um, I just, I just am very anti-debt. Uh, and that was one of the, 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 the reasons that, that played into my, uh, ultimate desire to, to sell, uh, the controlling interest was, was that I just knew that the debt cycle was never going to stop, that it was, the chips were going to just keep being more and more and more had to get put on the table, uh, for growth. So the 850 grand that you started off with to build out the first uh, sort of um, tranche, if you will, or the first uh, iteration, uh, you said friends and family. So were you, was that debt? Were they lending you the money? Did they take equity in the business? It, it was a loan and, and I satisfied it with equity. And when did you choose to satisfy it with equity? Then that was my, cho that was my, that was my choice. I could have just paid it back. Um, it, it, the, 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 my dad was basically the main money guy behind it and I could have just paid him back. But, you know, I, I felt like he took a huge gamble, uh, to, to, to loan me the money. You know, there's nothing in my background that said I would, that, that you'd look at me and go, yeah, that guy's definitely going to start a successful brewery. Um, so I just felt like he took this amazing gamble on, on me and I wanted him to, to get some reward out of it. So I converted it into equity, um, rather than pay him back. And and how did you value the business back then for the purposes of converting it into equity? Um, I forget the exact process. We just looked at what we were doing in, in cash flow and and um, you know came up with a value that was definitely much lower than than what breweries started being uh, valued for a couple of years later. Uh, but but we were both happy with uh, with the valuation. I was happy. He was happy. Uh, but I forget the exact metric. Got it. And I'm assuming you gave your dad the option to be paid out for the loan or take equity, and he chose the equity. He actually, he actually gave me the option, uh, and I went to him and said, "Do you want equity as opposed to being paid back?" And and uh, he, you know, again, he left it up to me, and I said, "Well, that's this is what I'd like to do." Got it. So the SBA loan. I mean, what was that process like going out and getting an SBA loan? And I mean, I realized it was it was an athema to who you are as a person. But I mean, I, mechanically, was it was it an arduous process? Was it relatively easy? You know, it wasn't. You know, it was just the typical red tape and and going through all of the the paperwork. It, you know, it wasn't uh, it wasn't difficult, but it was it was you know arduous. I guess as you said, it's just a lot of it's just a lot of redundant paperwork and fingerprinting and, and, um, you know, dotting all the I's and crossing all the T's. So 
well, it wasn't difficult. It was, it was a little bit time consuming. For people who don't know Cigar City, I mean, give us a sense of how big the company got before you sold it. Um, number of employees or sort of scope. So, yeah, we were right around 70 employees uh, when, when we actually sold, about 70 to 75. I, I say that because we were in such a state of flux, we were hiring in big chunks to kind of backfill things that we'd already needed and just hadn't hired for yet. Um, from, from a, in the brewing world, we tend to, to speak in barrels, uh, barrels of production. So um, if you've ever, if you've ever seen, you know, the, the big half barrel kegs are called half barrels because they're for 15.5 gallons. A barrel is 31 gallons. So for every barrel you produce, you've effectively made two large kegs. Uh, we did a little less than a thousand barrels in our first year, and we did over 55,000 uh, in the year that, that we completed the transaction, uh, and about 65,000 this year. And, and, and now that we've now that we have the capacity, being in in the in Oscar Blues Group, we're we're targeting 90 to 100,000 barrels of production for this year. So it's a phenomenal growth. What what period of time was that from the first year to the year you sold? How many years did that, was that? So that was uh, 2009, and we only actually were brewing for uh, eight months out of 2009. That was 1,000 barrels we did in our first year. And then we completed the transaction in 16. So it was, you know, it was effectively uh, just a little over six years uh, to go from under 1,000 barrels to to over 55,000 barrels, which put us, um, you know, it put us in the top 50 of, of craft breweries production-wise in the U.S. in yeah, just about six years. I think so. How did you grow that quickly? I mean, what what was, if, as you look back now, what was the secret to growing so fast? You know, a, a lot of it was, uh, it, it, any brewery that has success, it, it, there's got to be good liquid there. You, there has to be some passion about why you make what you make. Um, that that's a given. It has to be there. I think you know the thing was was timing. Um, you know, it, the market was so underserved in Florida, um, it, just almost laughably underserved. Uh, craft beer, you know, nationwide was trending towards ten percent, and I think it was around two two uh, percent in Florida, and and it was two percent not because the people weren't drinking it is they literally just didn't have the same kind of access to it. Um, so, so timing was a big part of it. And then I think just, you know, I was very into the craft beer scene in my area. You know, I'd been writing a beer column for, for a local paper. I had worked for, for another brewery doing sales. So I knew a lot of people in the industry. Um, and, and from an influencer standpoint, um, you know, not only was I in that position personally, but I knew a lot of people were, and, and you know, I think people knew that we were making beer for the right reasons that we were trying to build a scene and, and try to just improve uh, what locally produced beer was in our area. So I think that all sort of culminated in, in us being embraced pretty heavily, pretty early on, um, you know, cause any business that grows that fast, there's going to be a lot of growing pains and we certainly had them. Um, but you know, our, our hearts, we're always in the right place, even if our head wasn't. Um, so I, those main factors, just the timing, you know, the, the quality of, of, of what we were making and, and the passion behind it. We were very fortunate to, to win a lot of fairly prestigious uh, beer competitions pretty early in our career. That definitely put a spotlight on us. 
And then just in the local community, people knew that I really was very personally invested in in what craft beer was going to be in the Tampa Bay area. Uh, And then, you know, our employees, you know, the vast majority of them were working there out of love of beer as opposed to, uh, you know, hey, I just took that job because I needed the money. So at what point did you decide to to sell a controlling interest? And maybe talk about what the trigger was that uh, made you think through that. Uh, you know, it, it was, I never actually like put a single out and said we're for sale. Um, it, in our industry, growth is pretty coveted uh, and we were growing uh, pretty, pretty well. So, you know, people came knocking and, and wanting to have conversations and, and, I'm the kind of guy that I'll, I'll, I'll almost always talk to you. Um, so, so I, and I started talking to people and, and, and kind of getting a general feel for, for what other people in the industry uh, thought about us and, and where we sat. Um, you know, my personal decision to sell, it really probably came emotionally uh, about four or five years in. And it was just, you know, I, I set out, to kind of start a little craft brewery and, and kind of improve the scene in my area. I, I, I didn't really set out to, to start a very large brewery. That's not, it really wasn't in my thinking. It wasn't in my business plan. You know, I thought in year five would be, you know, if we were lucky 5,000 to 10,000 barrels and we were you know, 10 times that. Um, and it, it's just a very different business running a very large brewery versus running a small brewery. And then, you know, my personal dislike of debt uh, played in pretty heavily as well. Um, I just, as I was looking at the landscape, you know, I I was faced with, well, I haven't even paid off this first SBA loan, and I need to go borrow another 20 million to build the brewery that I that it would take to 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 supply the demand. And and, and the demand wasn't, you know, it wasn't pie in the sky. It was it was did not ship uh, orders in hand. Uh, we brewed X amount of beer, but we had orders for, you know, exponentially more than that. So I knew what it would take to build a brewery that could actually meet those orders. And while it was probably a safe bet, uh, I just personally couldn't, I just couldn't get my head around being that far in debt. I felt like, you know, I put my chips on the table, I won the bet. And then the dealer is saying, well, not only do you have to leave your winnings on the table, but you have to, leave your original bed on the table. Oh, and by the way, you have to match both of those things. <laughs> so I just felt like, like my success was actually leading me to sort of being more enslaved and st- instead of more free. Um, because while, you know, Hey, I won, I, 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 I built this thing. It's successful. It's doing well. Uh, you know, the, the market forces are telling me that I have to go in more debt and it just didn't make sense to me. So that's emotionally kind of what got me there was I wanted to be free. I wanted to be uh, in a situation where, you know, if the business doesn't do well, I'm not beholden to write a check to someone to pay back the equipment that I bought, hoping the business would do well. That's really what pushed me ultimately in the direction of, of selling um, was, was cause my, what I value, my concept of freedom is, is not owing anyone money. And, um, and, you know, that was a big, big part of it. And then obviously the fact that you know, the brewery had just gotten so far out of the scope of, of what my skill set was, what my passion was. Um, and, and quite frankly, I felt like I wasn't in my role as, as CEO, 
with my experience and background, I wasn't able to really give it everything it needed to get to the next level. And I've never, I'm not the kind of person that goes, you know, it's my baby. I built it. I own it. I've always believed that, you know, you, you make something and then it makes contact with the world. It's really not yours anymore. Whether that be a product, a poem, you know, a book, it takes on a different meaning to other people. And Cigar City started to mean something different to its customers than it, than it did to me. And I just had to, you know, just like a child that you've raised up and like put out into the world, you just got to let it go and be what it's going to be. Um, and I felt like in some ways I was holding it back. So that's really what got me there was, was, was those several factors in conjunction. Well said indeed. And, and I love the candor. And I think, uh, you know, it's not something we hear a lot, to be honest, on the show. And it's really interesting to hear your perspective on, you know, always being at the poker table, always having to put leave all your chips, uh, you know, on the table and having to kind of re-up. And it's a fascinating kind of analogy. So take us through the next step. So you're getting these offers. Obviously, one piqued your curiosity. What was it about the fireman approach that uh, Fireman Capital's the, the the, I guess the, the private equity company you ultimately sold to maybe talk a little bit about how that came about. So, you know, Fireman Capital, you know, they're, they're the money behind, um, you know, a, a group of breweries now. Um, but, you know, o Oscar blues is kind of the, they're the, they're the lead, they're the oldest, the largest. Um, and so that's really where my eyes were, was that this was a brewery that I'd always admired Oscar blues. And I'd, I'd, I'd always been impressed with how they did things. And, you know, they were kind of irreverent, uh, but they got shit done. Uh, if they announced that they were, you know, if, if they announced that they were going to do a new brewery, it was usually after the thing was almost done. Um, I just liked that. They, 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 you know, they, they partied hard, but they worked hard and, and they made things happen. So, so that was attractive to me. They were also just, you know, they were the first craft brewery in the United States to, to can exclusively. Uh, well, to can and to can exclusively, and that just took like massive moxie to to do that because at the time people don't see it now because craft beer in a can is everywhere. It's becoming the more popular vessel, and and there's a reason for that. It's actually better for for hoppy beers. But but at the time that Oscar Blues did it, you know, beer in a can was still very D class A. It was you know that was that was what cheap beer came in and you didn't put good beer in cans because it wouldn't sell. And Oscar blue said, no, bull crap. It's, you know, it's better. It, it, it's easy to carry around. It's better for an outdoor, uh, you know, active lifestyle because it's easier to pack it in and pack it out. You know, you're still carrying the bottles. If you, after you drink the beer, you're still having to lug those out. If you've been, if you've been, you know, on a, on a mountain bike run deep, deep in the woods or you're camping, uh, but cans can compress down into into a small bag, and it just all around it protected the beer better. It's a better vessel, uh, but because of what people thought the customer would think about it, you know, nobody in the craft industry was doing it, and Oscar did, and it actually gave me the courage to do it with my brewery. I switched from bottles to cans because I saw that they were able to do it, and and just their arc, you know, that was a big thing for me, but their arc, you know, they started in 96. I didn't start until 2009. So it just as a consumer before I'd ever owned a brewery, I got to watch their brewery and see how they did things. Uh, and I was just very impressed with, uh, with Dale, the owner of Oscar blues and, and how they approached, um, making beer and also selling and marketing beer. 
that was really the big pull was I wanted to work with someone like that, that, that kind of came where I came from, but had gone further than I had gone. Um, and that's, you know, that was one of the big factors why that's the, the group that I wanted to work with. That's helpful. So, so who made the first move? Did Dale approach you and say, Hey, can we buy you guys? Uh, you know, they had approached us. We, we had been talking with some other people. Um, and you know, there, there was some interest in, in, with some other transactions. I actually would have been okay with, with, uh, selling a minority control. Uh, but my father was pretty adamant that, that we either owned it together or, or he wanted completely out. Uh, so I had to respect his wishes. So I had to arrange the transaction in such a way that he would get the highest off offer that anyone else would have offered for his shares. Um, so, so that kind of put a wrinkle in things, but I was able to get to that point. Um, uh, so, so Oscar, initially kind of gave us a lower offer and then we 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 engaged with someone else um and then later in the game they kind of came back to us and 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 said you know look we've we've looked at it we we're, we're we're willing to 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 go that extra mile um and so it got my dad to the number that he would have gotten anyway and i was kind of free to sort of on my side of of the equity take whichever structure worked best for me so i ended up rolling a lot of equity into the new entity because like i said i you know i still love craft beer i still want to be around it i still want to be in it i stayed on at cigar city i'm still the ceo but i've got support now that i didn't have before uh and and on that side of things um you know my life has definitely vastly improved um but as far as as how the transaction went down they uh, initially approached us and it was really over probably a year year and a half period that, that we kind of got to to a final offer and, and went through due diligence and, and actually closed the transaction. So how much did, did Oscar come up on a percentage terms from the first offer to the second? Uh, quite a lot. Uh, probably, probably almost three times from their initial offer. Wow. But you know, the, you know, this was over a several month period and, you know, some dynamics had changed. We had also grown quite a bit, you know, from their first offer to their, to their last offer, which I think, you know, maybe gave them the security to, to see that, okay, these guys are still doing well. Um, you know, it, it, it's the growth is still there. Maybe they were a little bit gun shy about whether the growth, growth was sustainable. Uh, and in the, in the interim from when the first offer to the second offer offer, you know, we still had really good growth. Got it. So I'd love to understand the, the structure a little bit more. So your dad wanted out, and so they they basically paid him cash for his shares. Yeah, he was redeemed out with cash. And how did how did the investment work out for him in the end? Extremely well. <laughs> uh, I, I can't get into specific numbers, uh, but. Extremely well. The problem is I can't even give you a ballpark because based on initial investments, you you know, you sort of figure it out. And I've promised that I would never uh, publicly say the sales price, but he did ex- extremely well. Savvy old dog. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that's great. Well, that's good. It's nice to be able to pay. I mean, 
kidding aside, was it was like how did that um, how did that feel to to be able to get that check for your dad after he'd sort of invested in you? Uh, you know, it, it was it was weird because you know my my father he he really didn't want me to sell. He 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 saw it as because you know, he was he wasn't active. He was passive, and he could just sort of sit back and be proud of it and 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 enjoy it but he didn't really have the stress of running it he wasn't a personal guarantee on any of the debt um so I, from his point of view he would have much preferred that that you know i hold on to it and continue continue to run it um and i, I couldn't quite get him into the headspace that i was in that like you know this is it's not pleasant for me it's very stressful and um you know i didn't get into this industry to to, to kind of go in the direction I'm going with the, with with the tools that I have, um, and getting I I never really got him to that place. He he really didn't understand why I could why I would be willing to walk away. I think in some ways it was more his baby than it was my baby. Um, but again, that's just how I view the world. I don't you know you create something, you put it out into the world, it stops being yours. But my father's a little more old school. He he's still very much like it is ours. We do own it. It, you know, we control it. And I couldn't get him to see it as that, that's true, but it controls us back. It controls what we can and can't do. It controls, um, you know, it, it controls whether or not I'm in a bunch of debt or not. And, and I never really got him there, but yeah, I think, you know, when he received that check, I mean, it, it certainly doesn't, it, 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 it certainly isn't something that, that you don't have that moment over. <laughs> and we talked a little bit about that. You know, he's my dad, you know, he's, he's a fairly wealthy man, but, but that is a kind of check that even a, an extremely wealthy man is, is going to, to raise an eyebrow over. Hmm. Fantastic. So t talk to me about the deal structure you accepted. I, I think a lot of the entrepreneurs listening to the show uh, are curious about, um, you know, selling to a private equity group, you know, rolling their shares into, into a, into a, a group versus taking cash. Maybe just talk a little bit about what, you know, the mechanics of that and, and, and how, how you got your head around the idea of rolling um, well, you know, your, your equity into, into. Yeah. This. Well, I, you know, I did, I did take a lot of cash, you know, that was important to me. Um, you know, I, I built it. I wanted to kind of have the, the, the security, the swim to shore money that, to know that, that, you know, if I can no longer own it and control it, that I've got, you know, I've got a nest egg. Uh, and then I rolled the other equity because I still really believe in, in not just what Sewer city brewing was doing, but the other breweries in the group, Oscar blues is the big one, but, but, uh, Perrin out of, out of Michigan, uh, squatters and Wasatch out of Utah, they're in the group as well. And I feel like when you look at those breweries collectively, there's a lot of upside. Uh, they're all making really good beer. They all have really uh, interesting things separately, but what you can do with the breweries combined and just also the, the diversity of being in, you know, many different regions. Uh, Oscar Blues is out of Colorado, but they have a brewery in North Carolina and in Austin, Texas. Uh, Squatters and Wasatch are in Utah. And then, as I said, Perrin is in Michigan and you have us down in Florida. Uh, you know, we're not, we haven't kind of got the whole country covered, but we've got a nice sort of regional base. And, and we're still looking at other opportunities to add breweries into the platform. 
um, that, you know, that's what was attractive to me is that I could, I could go forward as part of a team that has a lot of combined knowledge. You know, th- there are some things that Oscar Blues has, has taught us that it, it never occurred to me to try those things in that way. Uh, and on the business side of things, they've just been doing a lot longer. They're a lot sharper, but vice versa, we were doing some things in our brewery that, that, that were new to them. Uh, so the internal knowledge share has been really rewarding to me. Um, we've been able to do things that we just, it never would have occurred to us to even try in the past uh, and get really good results from. So that was one of the big attractors for me in, in rolling equity was to still be a part of it, you know, to, to, to kind of have the comfort of knowing that, that, you know, in my personal life, everything's taken care of, but I can still, I can still gamble. I can still sit at the table and I've still got chips on it. Um, and, and if I play the game well, you know, I can still benefit. Got it. So I want to get into, and I know before we hit record, we talked a little bit about the fact that the actual sale price is confidential. So we're not, I'm not going to, obviously we, we won't talk about the actual sale price or you can't, uh, but I would be fascinated to know on the deal mechanics, um, when the, when the, you were acquired obviously for a multiple uh, on your EBITDA, um, let's just for round numbers and, and for, for, uh, illustrative purposes or, or for an example, let's imagine that's a 10 times EBITDA. Uh, do you then, at, when you roll your equity into the larger group, are you basically valuing their group at the same multiple of EBITDA that you sold your company? Uh, no, it, you know, I, I forget the actual mechanism, but it's sort of a blend. Uh, yeah, you are paying sort of what you paid for yourself but then it's sort of a blend of all the other things, you know, every transaction that went into um, Oscar Blues Holdings, uh, it, it, it was sort of valued different. So there's just a valuation for the whole company. Um, and so my attorneys basically look at that valuation and, and we agree on it. So, you know, my X equity will be worth X percentage. Um, and again, while I don't remember the exact mechanisms within that, um, you know, I was happy with with the valuation and what I was paying to to buy into the group. What have you done with the money, uh, the cash that you took out? Um, I know you said personal freedom is really important to you and being debt free. Um, have you done anything unique or interesting with the the cash portion of your proceeds? Um, you know, I you know the typical things. I bought a, a very nice house uh, on the water here in Tampa Bay. Um, you know, I bought some, some, some nice presents, uh, for the wife and, uh, but the vast majority of the money I've, I've invested sort of traditionally, because like I said, I'm still, my main, you know, role is still CEO of Cigar City Brewing. So I I don't really have time to be active in anything else. So the vast majority of my money is basically under management. Um, I I did start a family foundation, uh, with a large chunk, uh, because there's, you know, some things that that are important to me that I, I'd like to, to give back if I could. Um, so I started a family foundation. Um, you know, it, I, I've taken a few trips, nothing really extravagant yet. Um, I took a little bit of time off just to kind of unwind that anyone who sold a business, you know, understands that, that the process can be pretty draining. Um, I have some specific health issues that kind of made it worse for me. Just, um, I, I, the stress level, I don't, when my body creates adrenaline, it doesn't dump it 
uh, very well. And it's just a, it's a genetic uh, S and P SNP uh, called NTHFR. If you spell that out, it, it looks like a motherfucker. And it can be fun. <laughs> I was just going to say, it doesn't look very good. Yeah. No. So it, it's just, this, it, it's a genetic thing that affects your methyl pathways. And so um, I, my adrenal, my adrenal glands get burned out really easy. And so I went through it, you know, a year and a half of a fairly stressful situation. And so, you know, I took some time off just to kind of decompress from that. You know, it is an all encompassing, very stressful um, situation to, to go through selling a business. Um, and, and so that was a big, you know, that was a big lecture I afforded myself was to just do nothing for a little while. What advice would you have for an entrepreneur going through their first sale? Um, you know, I would say everybody's different. You know, I kind of sabotage myself because instead of continuing to work out and eat well through the process, um, I kind of let that go. And that actually sort of eroded my health base. I think, you know, it, everyone's different. Some people are blessed with, with, with uh, good health and, and they're robust. And then that, you know, to someone like that, I would just say, you know, continue to work the process and, and just, you know, show up and do all the things that you've always done. But, but if, if the stress is getting to you, it's important to sort of maintain all the things that you had done prior to help you with stress. So if exercise helps you with stress, exercise, you know, make sure that you're still doing that. Make sure that you're eating well, um, you know, because, again, if you're not there physically and mentally, things are going to fall by the wayside. It's just, it, it's just the nature of, of humanity. You, if you, you aren't healthy and, and, and well-fed and well-rested, um, you, you're not going to function at your peak. Uh, and then as far as, you know, make sure you get good advice. Uh, if you, if you, you know, if you're having attorneys help you or a banker help you make sure they've done those specific types of transactions before, you know, in my industry, it's federally regulated. So, so there's extra wrinkles there, um, you know, and joining, joining forces with other breweries, it kind of changes the taxes that every brewery pays. So there's just little things that might be specific to your industry that you have to pay extra close attention to. Um, and so, you know, just like anything else, just like you would in your business, you know, hire smarter. Um, make sure that the, the people that are advising you know way more about it than you do, but that they still have that teacher's heart, that they're, that they're not there to be smarter than they you they're there to get you as smart as 10 i've never heard that expression the teacher's heart but uh it makes good sense what a fascinating story joey i really appreciate you sharing it with us where do people find out about you and the company what, what's uh what urls can we go to uh you can check out the uh brewery at cigarcitybrewing.com uh i don't have a, a personal email um but i don't know maybe on facebook <laughs> <laughs> joey redner thanks for joining us all right Thank you for having me. Thanks for listening to Built to Sell Radio with John Warlow. For complete show notes with links to additional resources, visit builttosell.com slash blog. John is the founder of the Value Builder System. To find out how to improve the value of your business by 71%, visit valuebuildersystem.com. John is also the author of Built to Sell, creating a business that can thrive without you, and the automatic customer, creating a subscription business in any industry. Connect with John at Facebook.com slash Built to Sell or on Twitter at John Warlow, W-A-R-R-I-L-L-O-W.